Welcome to Sitka Tells Tales, a live storytelling series set in Sitka, Alaska. Tonight's theme is Point of No Return, when there is no turning back. This event was recorded live at Beak Restaurant in Sitka on September 28, 2017. I'm your host, Ellen Frankenstein. And before we start sharing this edition of Sitka Tells Tales, Stories from the Vault, I wanted to explain that in pre-COVID times, we were busy creating new, live, in-person events. We didn't find the time to tidy up and put most of our shows on air or in podcast. Well, more time and place led us to reach back and finally share some of these programs from the past. It feels like opening a bit of a time capsule. Some of our stories are from people not in Sitka today. But even in absence, those stories stay behind. And we hope this storytelling program is one way to keep sharing them. Thanks for listening. We have five amazing stories tonight. The theme is Point of No Return. And the themes for these storytelling events come out very randomly from people's suggestions and various ideas. This one came out from a volunteer. We were thinking about what was going to be our next event, and she told me her idea, and I said, ah, that's a point of no return when there's no going back. Everyone has six minutes. We are going to have five seekers tonight. They get six minutes. Shannon is our amazing timer. And at intermission, we're going to pass around a jar, and if you want to tell a two-minute spontaneous story to the same theme at the end of the night, you are welcome to. The other thing I want to say is I'm very, very proud of our storytellers. I think they're really brave, and I promise you tonight, you're going to laugh, and you also might cry. I'm going to introduce the first teller. This is Brian. Brian Hulfish claims he biked from San Francisco to Atlantic City at the age of 10. It is said he was nearly gored to death by a bull on a beach in Thailand. Supposedly, he met his wife in the rice aisle of the grocery store. And he's going to tell us a story set in a group home with a villain you may not expect. So if I speak quickly, part of it's because I was born in New York, and the other part is because six minutes. So basically, this begins in 1995, I got a job working at a group home in Tucson, Arizona, and it wasn't really a group home, it was actually in a huge apartment complex, and we had clients that shared apartments, and we had another apartment that served as our office. And my job title was mentor, which, you know, it's lot to live up to. But I was supposed to be helping teach my clients, not my friends, of course, they made that very clear, my clients, life skills, like cooking and taking the bus and stuff like that. One night, I was helping a guy cook dinner, and I heard this huge crash in the apartment downstairs, and I knew that there were two clients that lived in the apartments down there. It sounded like the entertainment center had just fallen over or something. And so I went down there, and when I got down into the apartment, I saw one of the guys had blood coming down from his arm from, a, obviously, a bad cut. His arm was covered in blood. This guy was about 6'8". I'm 6'6". I rarely look up 
to people, but I look up to this guy. He had Marfan syndrome, and men with Marfan syndrome average about 6'3 in height. This guy worked at a Walmart bringing in carts, and there he was. You know, he's covered in blood. So I grabbed a towel, I wrapped it around his arm and compressed it and went to the van and got him in the van and I was taking him to the hospital and he was explaining to me what had happened as we're going to the hospital. He said, I don't understand what happened. And I mean, this guy, super kind, very gentle guy. And he, he said, I was just moving my roommate's wrestling magazines uh, because I was cleaning up for the playoffs tomorrow. I'm gonna have the party, the Packers are playing tomorrow. I was tidying up the apartment and when I picked up his wrestling magazines, he came up and pushed me and I lost my balance and I put my arm through the window. He had not a shred of, of anger toward his roommate. It was just more kind of disbelief and he just didn't understand why it had happened. So I'm taking him to the, get his stitches and, and I'm thinking, he's being so great about this. I said, Matt, what do you want? I'll take you out for dinner tonight. What would you like to eat? He said, a, a cheeseburger and a, and a milkshake. I said, I'm gonna take him to the nicest place once he gets these stitches. So we go in, he gets his stitches takes him like a champ and we go out to a restaurant and the first restaurant we get to it's packed it was too long of a wait we go to another place same thing just packed with people too long of a wait i said geez where can we get a cheeseburger and a milkshake we've gone almost everywhere i don't want to take him to a fast food place hooters <laughs> so this kid's 18 you know so we go to hooters so at some point i remember him leaning over to me and saying there sure are a lot of pretty girls here, Brian. I said, yeah, Matt. So he has his milkshake, he has his cheeseburger. I take him back to the place. And I'm thinking, I'm kind of upset at his roommate now. And now his roommate is a, is a fellow with Down syndrome. He was also 18 years old, came into the group home straight out of high school, just like his roommate had. So I said, okay, I'm gonna call the community police officer. I need somebody to come down here and impress upon this guy the severity of the situation and what he's done. And so I called the community police number and I left a message. And about a half an hour later, I see this guy in a uniform out in the courtyard of the apartment complex. And I thought, wow, the Tucson Police Department is on it. They are quick. So I went up to the guy and I said, are you uh, from the Tucson Police Department? Are you here about such and such? He said, he said no, uh, I'm actually, I'm a former Tucson Police Department officer and I'm a security guard here at this, at this apartment complex and I live here. And I explained the situation. I said, would you come talk to this guy? Here's the deal. He said, sure, I'll, I'll come and talk to him. So we go over there. As soon as he sees us coming over, here's Chad. He's hanging on the top of the door frame and I can see the fear in his eyes. And I'm trying to walk ahead of the cop and I'm saying, we just wanna to talk to you about what happened. You know, everything's okay. He takes off running. He's a big guy. So there he goes. He's around the side of the apartment complex and by the time I get around there, I tell the security guard, I'll be right back. I go around to get him. He's halfway down the apartment complex and I can see he's out of gas. He's got his hands on his knees. He's huffing and puffing and the, the sprinklers have come on. So I get down there and he says to me, I don't want the handcuffs. And I said, you're not gonna get the handcuffs. It's gonna be, we just wanna talk to you, it's gonna be fine. Just come back to your apartment, let's talk. So he goes back there, and I have to kind of break away to tell this other part of the story. And I'll get back to the confrontation there in his apartment, but the following day, I saw this Tucson police officer out there, and, and I said, oh, he's already been talked to, I gotta go you know, get rid of this guy. So I went and I told him, oh, 
he's already been talked to. I had a security guard who was a former TPD officer come and talk to him. He said, oh, what's the guy's name? And I said, Joe Hill, right? Like, I dreamed I saw Joe Hill last night. So Joe Hill, he says, Joe Hill, ha ha. I said, what, 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 what is it? He said, no, I can't tell you, I can't tell you. I said, come on, tell me. He says, I'll tell you this much. He said, next time you see him, ask him to show you his scorpion bites. I said, huh. So the next time I saw him, I asked him about the scorpion bites, and he tells me this story about how he and his kids got in this Christmas tree, brought him into the apartment just after he had moved in there, and he had bad dreams that night. As it turned out, when he went finally to the hospital, they told him, hey, you, you've, been, you've been bit repeatedly by scorpions. I mean, there you got, you've had some bites. So he goes back, and he realizes that scorpions have come in on the Christmas tree. So first thing he does, he takes the Christmas tree, takes outside, stuffs it into the dumpster, and he comes back up, vacuums his whole place, finally takes the couch cushions off, and there they are, three baby bark scorpions. So this debilitated him so much that he ended up leaving the force, becoming a security guard, one of those guys that would like go down to the bar, make sure that the cash, you know, all the cash is going to the till, not in the bartender's pocket. So back to the apartment. Chad comes back. And the guy's grilling him. He's giving him bad cop, bad cop. You know what you did was wrong. You hurt your roommate. This is unacceptable. I can see him retreating into himself. So finally, I said to him, Chad, go tell your roommate you're sorry. He looks up. He goes over to him. He bends down on one knee, breaks into tears. I mean, just everything. He's, I'm so sorry. I'm sorry. I pushed you. Boom. Perfect. That's it. So we leave. And I guess here's the thing. Point of no return in this story I go into the scorpion story a little more, but it was like a story, part of which I experienced and part of which was told to me. And one part is just about this random darkness of nature, just like scorpions riding into the house on a Christmas tree. And the other is this story I witnessed that's about like forgiveness, human forgiveness, like love, like just love. I mean, in a way, basically when it comes down to it, not to be too cliche about it, but here I am, I'm supposed to be the mentor and really, a client like this guy, even though he did push his roommate through the window, the way he experienced his grief and his love, that that guy, I mean, he and a lot of the other clients ended up being mentors to me. And there is no point in no return after you meet these kind of people that show you these things in life. So that's my story. Luis and I survived a collaboration together that... Barely. <laughs> barely. That actually destroyed our relationship, but here we are. No. Did you say we destroyed... Oh, yeah. Like five years. <laughs> so this is a real cool testament of why living in Sitka is really amazing, because you kind of have to take responsibility for your actions, and then later on, you kind of work it out. <laughs> so now, Luis is going to introduce herself. I'm Luis Brady. <laughs> And I'm not really a storyteller. And once again, Ellen, our collaboration before was a, a little documentary. And I wanted her to do it. And she says, no, come on, do it with me. We'll be done with it in six months. Two years later, <laughs> barely talking, five years of no talking after it, <laughs> we made it through. And then she's like, oh, come on, Louise, it's just six minutes, so... One of the things that I was worried about is like if I could tell a story that would be relevant to the people could relate to, 
So I guess this will be the only like audience interaction because I want to see if you guys would be able to relate to this. How many of you have a mother? <laughs> oh, okay, good. <laughs> Not my mother. <laughs> Just a little bit of background. So my mother, looks like some of you may be too young and too new to know, but my mother was Isabella Brady. And she was a force to be reckoned with. And apparently so was I for a little while. And probably from about the age of 13 to maybe 30, we couldn't be in the same room together without like major yelling and screaming, I don't have to believe what you believe, no, you're crazy. And you know, somebody leading and saying, I'm just never gonna talk to you again. And you know, there was a reason behind that. And I would say probably most of my adult life has been spent on a healing journey. Because I, I had a rough, I had a rough adolescence. And it was pretty much, it was characterized by a lot of violence, domestic violence, sexual violence. And, you know, there was a point probably in my 30s that I really was like, it was, it was tough. I was seeing a therapist and was thinking, I don't know if I can get through this because I don't know if you know anything about PTSD. I was not able to, you know, I was just crying myself to sleep or I was raging. I could barely make it to work. I was just like ready to leave Sitka. And uh, my therapist, I was talking to her one day and she's like, I told her, well, you know, my mother talked about some things that she had to go through. But, you know, she never was very specific and she never, you know, said how she dealt with it. And so my therapist is like, well, why don't you talk to her about it sometime? And I thought, oh my God, <laughs> no. And, um, and I thought about it and I thought about it and I was like, no, I should talk to her about it. And so again, if you don't know my mother, Isabella, she worked for the Sitka Native Education Program. And so I decided to call her at work and her administrative assistant answered. And she transferred me to my mother. And I'm like, hi, mom, you know, I'm seeing a therapist right now. And I'm really having a tough time with, you know, I'm dealing with some really tough issues. And I was wondering if I could talk to you about it sometime. And she's like, well, yes, of course. Why don't you just hang up and call back and make an appointment with the admin assistant and come in and we can talk about it. <laughs> I just loved her so much. Anyway, so, you know, I'm building up all this anticipation because I've got this really interesting relationship with my mother. So I go into her office at the appointed time and, you know, sit down and kind of told her what was going on, that, you know, I was having a really tough time and I really needed to know if there was any kind of guidance because, you know, she had told me that, you know, one of her earliest memories was being probably four or five, six years old, pretty young child, and having to, you know, like beg her father not to shoot her mother. And, you know, having to come downtown on Thanksgiving and Christmas and uh, begging her parents to come home so her brothers and sisters wouldn't have to spend Christmas alone. And so 
I thought maybe she had some really good answers for me. And her response was, well, you know, I, I said, how did you get through? How did you get through all of this? And she said, well, we didn't have all these newfangled things like therapy like you guys have today. We just all thought people had all of these problems, and we just got through the best way that we could. And I could have been dissatisfied with that, and I could have given up, and I just thought, you know, I really wanted an answer as to how I was going to, you know, be able to continue on my journey of becoming who I am as a woman and as my mother's daughter. And the longer, I guess, that I thought about it, I really got some insight into who she was and that she was incredibly strong and that she didn't have all of the things maybe that we have today to get through. And I would like to say from that, <laughs> from that point forward, our relationship was all nice and wonderful. It wasn't, you know. Um, I went through this great time of, of going to school in, in Colorado as a single parent of a four-year-old and taking 18 credits and going on food stamps and, you know, not being able to take my son to daycare. And I love the professors and my graduation. <laughs> I just love On my graduation day, so we go to all these parties and all my professors are like, oh my God, Mrs. Brady, your daughter is wonderful. And, you know, oh, Mr. Brady, your daughter is awesome. We just loved having her in class. And then we get back to my apartment so we can start packing. And the first words out of my mother's mouth, I just don't know where I went wrong with you. <laughs> and for the first time in my life, I was able to say, you know, that really hurt my feelings. And I really wish, you know, were you, were you just at the party in my graduation? And I think the rest of my relationship with her was spent in a really wonderful and healing way and I got to spend some awesome time with her to help her and I feel so blessed and fortunate that I had the people around me to support me and come through all of that and uh, and be able to heal that relationship with her and to to move forward and be the fantastic person I am today <laughs> thank you Sherry is a boomer with the millennial spirit who wants to help the world be happier, kinder, and more just. Her story, Dios Nunca Muer, God Never Dies, is about those times when you connect with someone heart to heart, and their life depends on you doing your best, and there is no turning back. I have to say, I was scared to death of your mother when I moved to Sitka 15 years ago. <laughs> but I ended up like you. <laughs> well, good evening, everyone. Thank you so much for a wonderful turnout. My story is from a time in my career in life uh, back in 1990. I was the pediatric cardiology social worker at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. And I had the great honor and privilege to work with Dr. Puga, who was originally from Mexico. And he started a program to provide heart surgery and care to children from literally all over the world. 
And during my time at Mayo Clinic, a young woman by the name of Ohania came to Mayo Clinic with her beautiful mother, Margarita. And at the time, Ohania was nine years old, and she had a very serious heart defect. And uh, her mother had taken her to a doctor in Mexico City who basically had told her, you need to just take your daughter home to your home and let her die because there's nothing we can do for her. However, for any of you who have traveled to Mexico, you know that the pharmacies are like the main source of health care, and the pharmacists are really key health care providers in small uh, Mexican communities. So Margarita talked to her pharmacist, and he started doing some research, I think, and they found out about Dr. Puga. And, of course, he was from Mexico and originally from Mexico City. So Margarita and Eugenia came to Mayo Clinic, and I was a social worker. And I met them, and of course, neither one of them spoke any English, and I spoke no Spanish. I speak a little bit now. However, the wonderful thing about Mayo Clinic is they have interpreters and translators for just about every language in the world. So we were able to really make a strong connection. She had surgery, and she was doing kind of okay. However, as we started looking at discharging Ohenia, Dr. Puga and his team, along with myself, said, Ohenia cannot go back to Mexico. If she does, she will not have the health care she needs to survive. And so I had to arrange for this beautiful young woman to be adopted by a family in the United States. And fortunately, her father had some distant relatives in the Chicago area. But as a mother of two children myself, I couldn't imagine the heartbreak and the sadness that Margarita was feeling. And she could not get a visa or permission to stay in the country. She had to go back to Mexico. So I arranged for this family to come, and we got everything worked out legally. And she went to live with this family in Chicago and continued to get her health care at Mayo Clinic. I left my position, but I kept in touch with her all those years, and she would send me little drawings, and we'd write letters, and I would communicate with the family. And then many, many years went by, and she turned 17. And they told her, you're almost 18. You can either stay here, or you can go home to Mexico. And by then, her health was pretty stable, so she decided to go home to Mexico. And it was such a wonderful trip because she went home and she met Jose, a wonderful man who ended up being her husband. And then shortly after they were married, she was 19 when they got married, her health started to deteriorate. And so they had to come back to Minnesota, to Rochester. And they lived there for the rest of Hohenia's life. She died when she was 31. And one year, they were going to Mexico for a family wedding, and so they invited me to go along. And so I went, and it was like going home for me. It's a small town in Mexico, Tangansicuado, in the state of Michoacan, and I was so welcomed in that community, and I kept going for the next five years by myself because Ohania couldn't travel anymore. And one of the years that I was there, her mom was so upset, and of course, we had to have someone kind of translate. When she had taken her daughter to Mayo Clinic, back when she was nine years old, she had prayed 
please, Lord, let her live till she's 30. That was her prayer. And Ohania died at age 31 in Minnesota, and she had wished to be buried in Minnesota because that's where her life was given back to her. And her mother embroidered me this beautiful piece of art called uh, Dios Nunca Moye, which means God Never Dies. And that has been the most poignant and the most touching part of the career that I've had. And when I think about her family who I stayed in touch with and her parents, I just feel like that was something of a point of no return for me. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Sitka Tells Tales. If you want to get involved, tell your own story, or suggest a theme, please reach out and send us an email to artchangeinc at gmail.com. Now, before we get into this next tale, I do want to let you know that it does talk about some sensitive topics like suicide. Listener discretion is advised. If you are having thoughts of suicide or are in a crisis, please reach out to someone you trust or call the Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 800-273-8255. That's 800-273-8255. Emily Kwong is a news reporter at Raven Radio. Emily was previously stationed at WNYC. That's in New York City, I believe. (laughs) Teaching radio documentary to high school students. She came to Alaska three years ago to report on the local level, seeking water, mountains, and community. She's grateful to have found it here in Sitka. Emily. Okay, Mom. So we're here <laughs> um, in front of these fancy microphones to talk a little bit about your life and also about the past three years. Yes. This is a recording of the most difficult interview I've ever done. I was 23 years old. It was freezing outside. I was in a recording booth in downtown Manhattan, wrapping up an oral history internship, and I had chosen to interview my mom. She was 52 years old at the time, with a smile that lit up her whole face like a pair of parentheses. She was the kind of mom who, when my sister and I didn't want to go to bed, she'd play this game where she'd get down on all fours and pretend to be a mother bear. And we were her bear cubs, suddenly. And she'd nuzzle her neck towards us and touch her nose to our nose and kind of motion upstairs, and we'd plod up the stairs behind her, totally hypnotized by her bear walk. She was a genius at being a parent, and a mom is all she had ever wanted to be. I was her firstborn, but not a very easy child to bring into this world. The problem was I pushed so hard, I somehow ended up popping the blood vessels in my eyebrows. Because I was pushing with my face. <laughs> you have to bear down. <laughs> yeah, I wasn't bearing down oh, correctly. I'm so sorry for that. No, no, no. You don't need to be sorry. And and you had a ton of hair. And I remember your eyes just locked on mine. Just locked. 
online. I'd heard this story before, how my sister just slipped out like a happy dolphin wanting normal things like food and a nap, and, and I didn't want any of that. I just wanted to stare at this, this woman and ask her all the questions with my eyes that I couldn't form with my baby mouth. And she'd talk about nursing me in the summertime with the window open and all the fireflies were outside blinking, and we were just kind of silently communicating with each other. We had this relationship for 23 years, but lately, whew, I had had a really difficult time looking her in the eye, and that is because my mom had attempted to take her own life the year before, and that is what I wanted to talk to her about. So my mom was suffering with a major depressive disorder, but she wasn't diagnosed until later in life. She had learned to fend off panic attacks by breathing into a paper bag in the 60s, 70s. And by the time she got married, she was a master at hiding her mental illness. We had no idea she was struggling. And until one day she came home from work, I was on winter break home from college, and she couldn't take her coat off. She was just standing in the living room with her coat on, and we were like, Mom, take off your coat. What's going on? And her eyes were just glassy, and she was stuttering, and it was like she was trapped in her own body, and her brain had kind of blown a fuse. So we took her to the psychiatric hospital, and the doctor said, do you know your mom has been suppressing suicidal thoughts since she was 14? And I felt the floor fall from under me, thinking, no way. But it turns out that mental illness is as silent and can be as deadly as any terminal illness, a chemical imbalance that often affects the lambs of our world, not the wolves, and it can sometimes look like a smiling, radiant person who knows how good life is. Hold on. I do have to look at what I'm supposed to say next. She became a stranger to me, and the year went by. She stopped really getting out of bed, and I remember exactly where I was, studying for finals in the library, sitting on the floor, when my dad called me and said, Emily, I'm really sorry to tell you this, but your mom tried to take her own life this morning. She swallowed an entire bottle of pills, 180 pills, and your sister found her. And all I remember in this moment was the cold marble of the floor against my body, and I could hear my heart beating. I walked into the recording booth full of all this rage towards her, wanting her to understand everything we had been through because of this. But the thing about interviews is you also have to listen. And I got to hear her side of the story too. How she was out of her own mind when it happened, how she felt when she woke up and realized what she'd done, how she was actually wearing a t-shirt that said life is good on the front, and how, and, and how her psychiatrist, who she wanted me to know looked just like Sigmund Freud, um, noticed the shirt too. And he looked at me and he said, nice shirt. And he said, I have no idea how you're alive. He said, or not permanently brain damaged. I have no idea. Do you realize that God has given you a miracle? And I started to cry. And he said, how do you feel now about living? 
And I said, I don't know. Maybe it's because I was looking at her for the first time in a long time, but I recognized her. This brave woman who had come back from the dead and was facing her family. And the fact that she could even sit in front of me at all and try to have this conversation and make meaning out of this unspeakable pain is beyond something that most parents are ever tasked to do. And the least I could do as a daughter was to thank her for that. So I managed to say this. To lose you would have devastated the three of us for the rest of our lives. And I would have never been able to see you come back from this. And that is the biggest lesson you'll probably ever teach me. I mean, I know it's not over yet, but seeing you come back from this, I don't know how Amanda and I, we couldn't be more proud of you. Thank you. And I know I know, we're going to feel that more as we go on. We're taking it really slowly, our whole family. And my mom, you know, she was the person who taught me the phrase, the only way out is through. And in that way, I do want to grow up to be just like her. Thank you very much. Well, I don't know about you, but I've been reading The Sick of Soup for 15 years, and I never had met Will until last Sunday when we all got the storytellers together. And, um, you know, we had some pretty emotional stories, all of the rest of us, and Will being the fabulous writer that he is. He's lived in Sitka since 1982. He was a reporter for both Raven Radio and The Sitka Sentinel, and now publishes The Sitka Soup. He is a longtime contributor to Alaska Business Monthly, and in fact, has a story about Sitka in the magazine this month. In his story, Even the Kids Are Commies, Will finds himself at the line between the Western world and the former Soviet Union at a time of great change. He has to decide whether to cross the line and whether he will ever make it out. So here's Will. Hi, I am Will Swaggle, and I do publish the soup, and and uh, and I love it when other people write in the soup, um, in in that Our Town column too, and you'll see it. We put their name on it, and I love to hear the people telling the stories tonight, and thank you to Alan for putting all this together. Uh, my story is a literal. It's not a line in the sand, but it was a line on a kind of a linoleum floor. And it's in the Moscow airport. And on one side of the line, you're in international space. And on the other side of the line, you're in the Soviet Union. And once you cross over that line, you can't go back. So that's the line we're dealing with here. Now, I'm a uh, child, a baby boomer, and I grew up very, very much with the Cold War. I was nine years old when the uh, Cuban Missile Crisis, nice time of uh, imagination that you're all going to be nuked to death. And people had air raid shelters in the backyards. Uh, Serious, serious. The doomsday preppers today had nothing 
on these people. They had like really elaborate setups um, back there. And we in school were all being taught to go under our desks and put our hands over our head, and which would you know protect us from the nuclear blast <laughs> that, that was going to come. And uh, but you know the most insidious thing of all was that they would tell these stories of children who were so indoctrinated by these godless Russian communists that they would turn in their own parents and their parents would be sent forever and the uh, children would become wards of the state and were happy to do it because they were so indoctrinated. You know, um, nuclear war just played such a large part in the movies, in the books, in the fantasies. You know, uh, now we're mostly dealing with viruses in apocalyptic. Back then, it was all radioactivity. And I was personally afraid of gigantic insects. <laughs> and I was really, really happy to hear that an insect can only get so big because it has an exoskeleton. <laughs> and if any of you people are afraid, evidently they're really, they can't get real big. <laughs> These spiders the size of garages are not gonna happen, so I felt very, very good about that. But I'm also Russian and Jewish, and so I also felt a little kinship with these Russian people. A lot of my heritage was in there. My grandmother yelled at us in Russian when she didn't want to know, she didn't want anybody to know what she was saying um, to us. This was that bad. So uh, there was always kind of a fascination there. So when uh, Glasnost, I don't know if you all remember that, um, and Perestroika and all started happening, um, the, uh, the Russians started filtering into the United States a little bit and into Sitka. So I wrote about them for the Sentinel a bit. It was fun. It was great meeting them. It really was exciting because they had had a similar experience to me that we were the enemy. And one day the phone rang and it was the Russians saying, we're having a big conference over in Vladivostok. We're opening up the city for the first time since 1933. Would you like to come cover it? Sure. If I had to go through Moscow to get to Vladivostok, I don't know how many of you know your geography, but that's the wrong direction. <laughs> Vladivostok is near Japan, and I had to go all the way from Sitka to New York to Moscow, all the way across 11 time zones getting there, and finally getting up to this line. There was supposed to be somebody there to meet me and they were gonna take me in. But when I got there and I got to this line, there was nobody there to meet me. And I was thinking, once I step over this line, I don't know if I could get back, <laughs> you know? I don't know what would happen to me. And so I'm thinking that all this stuff is coming back to me. People were saying when you go over there, don't write anything when you're over there. Don't tell them anything important. People were still warning me, you know, it was the last legs of the Soviet Union, but they were still warning me. And so I was, I was a little scared. I, I, I didn't know what, what I was gonna do. And, and then I saw a kid, a little kid uh, with a t-shirt on with a hammer and sickle on it. And I thought to myself, oh my God, there they are. That's the indoctrinated children. <laughs> There they are, right there. Oh, no, I can't do it. I can't cross this line. 
Yeah, I started thinking about it a little soon. Well, I was thinking, you know, a kid in the U.S. would have a flag on his shirt and nobody would bask an eye, you know, nobody would say a thing. This was a hammer and sickle, was a positive public symbol. And, of course, you put it on a kid's T-shirt and on little flags and your wine cooler and the whole thing. <laughs> so, so I saw the kid. The kid gave me strength. I crossed the line. Spent about a week in Vladivostok, covered the concert, wrote a nice series, and I'm now here to tell you the story. So that's my crossing the line story. Thank you very much. That's great. It's a tradition during our pre-COVID live shows to pass around a jar for people to volunteer to tell a two-minute spontaneous story on the night's theme. We want to share two of those stories with you now, starting with Duncan Coltharp and with Aaron Fulton closing the show. Hey, guys. Uh, my name is Duncan. This is probably good because it'll end on like a really... Like a point of levity. You could be a good wrap up after all these really serious stories. I grew up in Maine and uh, I had a very solid childhood. And uh, we had a sailboat and we used to take it sailing out uh, out of Rockland Harbor in Maine. And uh, we'd go to these different islands and things and then we would camp out or whatever we needed to do. And um, my dad actually has five kids before me from his first marriage. So I have all these older half-siblings that are like 20 years older than me. But my mom, I'm the first and I have two younger sisters. And so this is just a little story of uh, one of her first forays into parenting. My mom is wonderful. She's the best. And um, my youngest sister had never been born yet. So I was probably five or six. And uh, the older of my two younger sisters was uh, a few years younger than me, so she was little. And we went out, parked the boat, and my older brothers were with us, and they all went swimming. Now, this is the Atlantic Ocean in Maine in the summer, but it's really, really cold. But my older brothers were swimming, and I was like, oh, I want to go swimming with my older brothers. So I've got a life jacket on, and I climbed down the ladder at the back of the boat. And I get down to where my feet are in the water, and I go, that's too cold. And I climb back up. And my mom goes, no, you got to go in, or don't go in at all. And I, I uh, you know, I, I was little, so I was just like, okay, okay, I'll, I'll go in this time. So I climb down the ladder. Touch it again. Nope, too cold. Back up. I do this a couple more times, and my mom goes, all right, that's it. If you go down the ladder one more time, you need to go in the water, or I'm throwing you in. And so I was little, and I was like, okay, this time, my brothers are down there. I'm just going to climb down the ladder. It's going to be great. I go down the ladder, get up to my knees, and I stand there for a little while. (laughs) And I climb back up the ladder. And I'm like, my mom is a wonderful angel, and she would never do anything. (laughs) Two seconds later, off the edge of the boat, over the rail, into the water. Oh, so cold. So... I doggy paddle really fast all the way around the back of the boat, climb up the ladder, and I come out, and I'm just 
shivering. My lips are blue, and she felt terrible. She felt so bad. She like got chocolate and a blanket, and she had me all set up, and I lorded it over her for like 19 years. Like I was just like, mom, remember that time when you threw your small child off the side of a boat? Into the ice cold water? Yes, I would like to go out with my friends now. Great job, Duncan. So before I was in Sitka, I was in Durham, North Carolina in grad school. And for my last semester, I decided to just take a fun class, take an undergrad class and just rock their world, which I did. It was called Food, Farming and Feminism. Needless to say, it was all women. It was great. We watched different videos. We go through different, you know, topics and book reading and yada yada. Uh, one of the uh, movies we watched was Eating Alaska. And I'm like, oh my god, this is awesome. I already had like the fantasy of Alaska in my head. I had been here as one of the annoying cruise ship passengers like 16 years ago. Came to Sitka on like that perfect bluebird day, and I'm like, it's paradise. <laughs> and I always had it like in my heart. And then I saw this movie. I'm like, oh my god, I have to go back. Well, you know, spoiler, I got I got back. <laughs> Um, I ended up getting a just a, a, supposed to be a six-month internship at the Sika Conservation Society because of just random connections through undergrad and random emails and the wonderment that is the connections throughout Southeast Alaska. That was five years ago, so I found out the jobs. But um, it was really weird. I was sitting in SES, like typing away, and I see Ellen come in, and it was it was just the weirdest thing. I'm like, why do I know? And, and same thing with other people in town. And it took me until I was, I was house-sitting your cat Bukowski. And I remember looking on the shelf and seeing Eating Alaska. I'm like, wait. And I, like, I had this moment, I remember like, texting Ellen, like, oh my god, I know where I know you from. Because I, I know I've like, aggressively stared at you a lot of like, why do I know you? That was why. So it was clearly meant to be. So that, and almost in its own right, could be a, a point of no return of just like, that's the, that sealed the deal. I'm like, wow, all these almost strong women hunting in Alaska, eating cool things, and now I'm here and I'm meeting them. Oh my God. <laughs> it was pretty awesome. At least on like, for like the lady crush side of things of like, that definitely sealed the deal, like meeting all these awesome women who are in, in eating Alaska. On like the other side of things was, um, I was reaching the end of that internship with uh, that, that, that uh, program with SCS. And I'm like, I really like it here, but do I want to stay or not? And um, roommate at the time, I don't know if you know Greg Hunter. He's a delightful human being. He had told me like, oh, so um, I have some friends over this weekend. We're going to have a wizard party. I mean, no big deal. It's a costume party. You're totally welcome to come. It's just going to be... It, it was kind of a big deal. I didn't realize it at the time. I'm like, oh, oh, cool, costume party. That'll be fun. I dress up, and I this just hordes, hordes of people in extravagant costumes come to my house, and we we had a, a, a wizard party that it, it, we're living um, on the on SJ campus in the cottages up behind um, the museum. We were up there, and it spilled over. I think some of us wizards might have crashed jazz on the waterfront. We're sorry about that. <laughs> we got really excited. There was a wizard duel, but it was at that... <laughs> it was, like, in the middle of um, that, that whole party. I'm looking around, I'm like, there's a bunch of weirdos here. Like, so many of them, and they're, like, waving that freak flag so high. And it was kind of there, I'm like, I gotta figure out a way to stay. 
There's so many delightfully talented and delightfully weird people here who are so good and so proud and so open about everything that they do and so willing to share it with everyone. It was like after meeting all my lady crushes and then seeing all these delightful weirdos who were just, you know, welcoming me in with open arms of like, oh, your costume's like, okay, you only had a week to plan. Don't worry. We can help you out. Glitter. And it was, it was a wonderful thing. And, and yeah, that, so that was, that was five years ago. Yeah, Sika got its, its wizard hooks in me. And we've had a lot of great costume parties since, but in my heart, nothing will ever beat that wizard party. Aaron, that was wonderful. And thanks for proving if you spend a couple years on a film, someone will actually watch it. <laughs> Thank you for joining us for Sitka Tells Tales, a live storytelling event based in Sitka, Alaska. Tonight's theme was Point of No Return, stories when there's no turning back. And thank you to our storytellers today, Brian Holfish, Louise Brady, Sherry Hample, Emily Kwong, Will Swagel, Duncan Coltharp, and Aaron Fulton. Thank you also to Raven Radio and The Beak Restaurant. To find out more about Sitka Tells Tales and to hear other episodes of the podcast, you can visit artchangeinc.org. Your host this evening was Ellen Frankenstein, and our theme song is Clinktail by Poddington Bear. Thanks to the individuals who contributed to Art Change, Inc. for making this broadcast and podcast of Sitka Tells Tales possible. <laughs>